Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it, and judge it to decide whether it should be set free <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the cross-hemisphere film review podcast with me, Dan, slowly inching through peak hour traffic on a tram in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, drifting through the stately countryside in Cambridge, UK. In this podcast, we focus on fantastical films, horror, sci-fi and fantasy because we just love hearing screams, <gasps> laser guns, <laughs> And arrow whizzes. <laughs> That's terrible. Amazing. <laughs> That's so good. Hello, Conrad. How are you today? I'm very well. How are you? Very well, yes. Uh, anything in the mailbag today? Yes, we've been getting comments even on YouTube, which is amazing wow. because I haven't posted anything on YouTube for a couple of months and I'm very guilty about that. But yes, we got a comment from Neil Davis on our Capricorn One video. And he said, I always like to imagine studio owner Lou Grade being pitched this film and throwing in names of people he'd like to have in it. Quote, I can see Kojak flying in an airplane throwing insults at Elliot Gould. <laughs> <laughs> And he says, I have to confess, I have told the joke about mom being on the roof a couple of times, but it's a hard gag to pull off unless everyone is either really drunk or possibly half dead from thirst in a desert. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think he's right about that. Oh, yes, he is. That's great to hear. And also we heard from Daniel Extro Atherton on Twitter. Daniel is an extro super fan, mm. so much so that he appeared in a special feature on my special edition Blu-ray here in the UK. So he really is the extra super fan. Wow. And uh, he said that he really enjoyed our chat. He said, on this, the uh, Brian May singing a song about the, the star of that movie, I was wondering why Brian May did it. And it's because Anita Dobson, the actress who is Brian May's wife, was friends with Philip. And that's how that came about. So. Oh, wow. There we go. Very interesting. But he also said his favourite moment in the movie is when Tony shouts daddy and it cues off a Mexican standoff between the two father figures in his life. And he says his best 80s moment for him is the rubber shower attachment on the sink, which I think oh, is pretty good, actually. Yeah, right. Yes, I do remember that. <laughs> yeah. I did think it was quite strange. Like, why would you need that? <laughs> no showers in the UK around about that time. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. We were a, a nation of bathers, no showers. It's not as bad as in France. In France, you still can't get a shower. And if they do have a shower attachment, for some reason, they mount it halfway up the wall. I've, I've heard about this. <laughs> <laughs> Pointing either boiling hot water or icy cold water straight at your crotch, which is great. <laughs> 
Anyway, so yeah, it's a very 80s moment, that rubber shower attachment. It's good to hear from Daniel and great to hear that he enjoyed our chat, even though as an extra super fan, he must have been disappointed with our final verdict. Yeah, well, (laughs) you win some, you lose some. (laughs) You do indeed, yes. So this week, I'm very excited to do our very first Listener's Choice movie. Yeah, indeed. Chosen by Isaac, last name. Okay, I'm... uh, Head over to the oubliette and fetch it. Oh, wow. It smells like a Chinese fish market in here. That is a pong. Okay, I'm just going to grab the sucker and get out of here. Did you push me? Ah, back again. Mm. And I have our movie. Our movie is Push from 2009. Ah. It is an a sci-fi action movie directed by Paul McGuigan, who is a Scotsman, mm. and starring Chris Evans, Dakota Fanning, Camilla Bell, and Jaiman Hounzu. Right. And what's this film about, Conrad? Well, Chris Evans stars as Nick, a young man with telekinetic abilities who lives off the grid in Hong Kong in an effort to avoid The Division, a shadowy government agency that experiments on psychics and killed Nick's father when he was a child. The Division has developed a drug that it thinks can boost psychic abilities, although I'm not sure how it thinks this because everybody it injects it with dies instantly. Everyone except (laughs) Kira, a powerful pusher. That's a psychic who can implant memories and thoughts in the minds of others. Kira survives the drug, steals a batch of it and goes on the run, teaming up with Nick, his new friend Cassie, who can see the future and sketch it on an inconveniently black pad. (laughs) And the trio go on the run in an effort to elude the division, along the way doing battle with a colourful panoply of psychics desperate to get their hands on the drug, including sniffers, bleeders, shifters, wipers, shadows and Ditches. And it all culminates in an epic battle atop an unfinished skyscraper full of bamboo scaffolding and brightly coloured powdered paint. Ah. As you do. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes. So let's take a break and we'll talk about it. Let's do that. Hey, we are back to talk about Push, the 2009 sci-fi action thriller. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So this film was chosen for us by Isaac last name and came up in our oubliette roulette. Yes. When we spun it for the very first time. Very Mm. exciting. And he says, so the first time I saw Push, I was a sophomore in high school. Not knowing what that meant. I had to look it up. That means he was 15. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And he says, my mom picked it up on a whim from Redbox because my family loves sci-fi and the poster is wild. I'm not sure if Redbox went international or not, but basically it was a vending machine for DVD rentals, big, red and boxy, as the name implies. Mm, You can still see them in some grocery stores here in America. We don't have that here, actually. Did it make it to Australia? Um... 
I think we have something similar, yeah. Okay. But I, I don't think it's called Red Box. So he says, anyway, push kind of blew my 15-year-old mind. The story was atrocious, no doubt, but the creative fight sequences and cinematography were unlike anything I'd seen before. I haven't watched it since, but there are a few moments I remember very clearly, and I know you guys will have a lot to say about it. It's got Chris Evans, Dakota Fanning, and a pretty intense supporting cast. Mm. Interesting tidbit, the film was mostly shot guerrilla style with hidden cameras. The actors had to do just about every scene in one take and most of the extras are just everyday people in Hong Kong just going about their daily business. Mm. How did they get away with <laughs> filming just the public? Don't they have to get release forms for any person that appears on a film? I don't know. I've never understood this because I thought in order for CCTV to be legal, you essentially have given up your rights while you're outside of your own home and just wandering the streets. Oh. But whenever we used to do a project on hit record and somebody would appear on it, we'd always have to get them to sign a release form, didn't we? So Yeah. Exactly. That's my understanding of <laughs> if someone's face is on a film, you need to get their permission to use their face. Yeah. Because there are many faces in this film from, I guess, the mm. general public. <laughs> so does that mean I could be walking down the street and be in a film, maybe? <laughs> yeah. is, that, is that a possibility? <laughs> Quite possibly. I mean, I've wandered through the set of Grantchester a number of times. That's a British detective drama that's filmed in Cambridge. Ah, but yes. the trouble is it's set in the 1950s, so me swanning through in the back background doesn't go down very well. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to Push. I hadn't seen this movie before. Dan, I think you had seen it. I have seen it. Yeah. Um, but before we start talking about it, I think we should go through the terminology of this film. So it's a whole bunch of psychics, but they've all got different powers. So we've got the movers mm -hmm. who are telekinetic, so they can move things without touching them. Uh, we've got the watchers who can see the future. They have premonitions of the future. Mm. We've got sniffers <laughs> who <laughs> have to sniff an object <laughs> to see. <laughs> premonitions of it I <laughs> just seems like <laughs> such an inconvenient power um, <laughs> I mean what happens if you've got a cold you just can't <laughs> you just can't foresee the future you're blind yeah hay fever must be a drag <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you have shifters who can change the look of an object so they can make a business card look like a, <laughs> a security card or something. You have wipers. Wipers can wipe your memory and shadows. Shadows make it impossible for sniffers to detect you. Is that right? They're sort of like mobile cloaking devices, I think. Yeah. And then you have bleeders who have nothing to do with the brain, actually. They just they just shout at you <laughs> and then your head bleeds. <laughs> so I thought that was a bit strange because it had nothing actually to do with psychic powers, but oh well. No. And of course we have, as the title suggests, we have pushes. Mm. And Conrad, you have already mentioned it. They can push a memory onto someone else, a false memory. So they remember something that's never happened. Mm. Inception style. Yeah. So that's the terminology of the film cover. Mm. So, Conrad... What, what, what were your thoughts about this film? What did I think about this film? So I'm not a huge fan of 
superhero movies, as you know, mm. at least modern superhero movies. For me, it tends to be just a whole heap of CGI and not a single character that you can engage with or care about. Mm. So I tend to find myself somewhere in the second act nodding off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's many a Marvel movie I have seen the first act of, and after that, it's a bit of a blur. Uh-huh. Yeah. But this one, at least I find quite refreshing because the approach they've taken is not to use CGI very much at all. And I do believe there's no green screen in this movie. So although there are CGI elements, a lot of it is practical and a lot of it is wire removal and just sort of trying to get something on the screen on the day and then just using CGI to sort of clear it up in post. And it tried to have much more focus on A, creating a whole mythology around all these different types of psychic and B, trying to focus more on the characters and the interplay between the characters. Hmm, I completely agree. Uh, I think there were some green screen effects, okay. but they were only the ones where the characters were in cars. Oh, okay. So they would be in a taxi on a soundstage. And then yeah. It was just green screen in the background. They can put all the pretty lights in the background. I think those were the only green screen effects. Yeah. And I think the only reason that they use green screen in the car scenes, apart from it being practically easier to do, is because it's highly unlikely that you would be in a car that's moving in Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Apparently you just sit in a traffic jam for hours. A standstill. Yeah, <laughs> I I always laugh in, in those kind of driving scenes as well because you if you watch the driver, they're moving the steering wheel around. Like <laughs> yeah. if you just imagine a car doing that, it would just be swerving backwards and forwards. Through <laughs> I know, I've always wanted somebody to take the piss out of that, like in one of those Zucker Brother <laughs> airplane movies, to just cut to the external of the car and just watch which is sort of veering left and right <laughs> rhythmically along the road. Because that's always what the actor does. I suppose it's just the temptation. The wheel is there. You just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you have no reference, I guess. So, like, you pretend that you're <laughs> just weaving backwards and forwards. It's terrible. <laughs> Back to the practical effects. I think that's one of the highlights of this film. Everything felt real. Even mm. some of the uh, kind of the fight scenes where they're throwing objects. They're actually physically throwing objects across the room. There's mm. one scene where a table or a chair gets thrown across the room and knocks Nick Chris Evans character over and that's actually a practical effect there's no CGI there and it looks great mm. and I think all the fight scenes in particular do stand out yeah and as well as that the director Paul McGuigan prefers long takes which is very refreshing because so many action scenes in modern films tend to be edited Mm. so tightly and it's just a blur of movement to me. I can't tell exactly what's happening Mm. to who, whereas in this one you could. Mm, Yeah, there wasn't a million cuts Mm. to a fight scene. It was a lot longer. I mean, I compare that to like Kung Fu movies and they are just huge long takes. So, of course, nothing is going to get anywhere close to that. But it was still (laughs) good to see some long takes than a normal action scene it wasn't just like you said a blur of just what is going on there's a leg there's an arm there's another leg (laughs) (laughs) whose leg is that (laughs) so i did find the fight sequences quite engaging Mm. also uh, to do with the camera work throughout the film as well apparently it was all handheld shots and so it did feel very fluid Mm. as well and and quite kind of natural it must have been a nightmare in terms of blocking yes (laughs) for the camera crew but i think 
think it was very engaging in terms of where the camera was going and where it was following and it made a lot of scenes a lot more sort of heightened mm. whereas they would have been quite boring if it was just a tripod or crane or something like that. Yeah, and it, it gives it an immediacy as well. Practically speaking, I think it was probably the best choice anyway given the circumstances they were filming in. As Isaac mentions, they had to approach this very much guerrilla style because closing down a street in Hong Kong apparently is just impossible. So they would just set up their scenes and people would just wander through while they were filming, which must have been incredibly difficult for the actors. So kudos to them for not breaking their concentration and carrying on. But it's all filmed very much in that opportunistic style, the sort of thing you would get in the Jason Bourne movies under Paul Greengrass, for example, that sense of we just managed to capture this shot, you know, it's not been pre-planned. Nothing could be formally more different than our previous evil government entity trying to stop young psychics movie, The Fury. Mm-hmm. With that, you've got Brian De Palma's slick, everything pre-planned camera shots versus this, which is just mm. a million miles away from that. Yeah, and I really liked how the shots were, were set up so that the camera was on the other side of the street. Mm. So it was zoomed in on the characters, but you had all of this other stuff bustling around and people walking in front of the camera and cars going past. And it felt like you were in Hong Kong. I I think another great thing about this film is the location and the utilization of the location. Like I never felt like I was in a studio. Even in the interior shots, it still felt like we were in Hong Kong. And I love that because Mm. I just watched the DC movie Aquaman and they go to Sicily and I never, ever felt like that entire scene was in Sicily ever (laughs) i just felt this is obviously a green screen Mm -hmm. these are obviously not italians these are just extras and it just felt unauthentic it Mm. just didn't feel like you were there whereas in this film you always feel like you're in hong kong you do yeah hong kong is the star of this movie yeah everything just seems very tangible you can almost smell it it's Mm. that immediate you're really down in there amongst the crowds with these characters trying to get through the bustling streets and and you can understand why he's there i mean if you're trying to escape psychics then what better place to disappear than in probably one of the most crowded cities in the world Mm. so it makes sense from a story perspective but also just visually the city looks amazing but that's not to undermine the production design it's not as though they've just plonked a camera down and filmed what they could get a lot of the key locations are designed sets Mm -hmm. like the home of the sniffer It's just these amazing murals of bright red and cyan Mm. or the restaurant that they go to where there's a lot of luminous green plastics and partitions. You know, there are lots of sequences that just visually really pop. Mm, That restaurant that you're talking about, apparently I was listening to the commentary and it was cheaper to have the floors be actual marble Mm. than to have it painted so that it was faux marble. Really? (laughs) (laughs) bought stacks of marble and just had one with marble. (laughs) Yeah, so the production design was by Francois Seguin. Mm Mm-hmm. So many of the interiors, the colours just really popped. Uh, Also to do with the cinematography as well. Yeah. Uh, So the cinematographer was called Peter Sova, and the entire film feels very bright, and a lot of 
primary and secondary colors. So a lot of reds, a lot of blues, a lot of greens, mm-hmm. not many yellows. Because I immediately thought, oh, great, this is going to be one of those amber teal color graded films. Yeah. But it wasn't. There was <laughs> no yellow. There was no fire. But it still did have some locations that did almost have that teal look to it, very mm. blue, cold colors. But yeah, every other location was very brightly production designed. Um, also, just how it was shot, they really just pumped the color contrast on everything. This isn't a comic book film, is it? No, it's not, no. So it's not actually based on a comic. It was, it was written by David Borler. Mm. I looked him up. He hasn't written anything since, so I'm not sure what he's doing with this. No, <laughs> which is sad because Peter Sover, as well, if you look at his filmography on IMDb, pushes his last movie. Yeah. Now, I hope he's still with us. He's worked on a number of other films before that, like The Strangers and Lucky Number Slevin, which was Paul McGuigan's previous movie, which I really liked. Mm, I liked it as well. Yeah, but nothing since, which is Mm. a little bit disturbing. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what happened there. (laughs) No, I hope this didn't end a whole group of people's careers. Yeah, I mean, this film was a flop. Uh, it was at the yeah. box office. This could be wrong, but I think it cost thirty-eight million, mm. um, and it made forty-eight million, which is pff, that's not great. It's not no, because they say that you have to double the budget to account for the marketing costs. So you're looking mm. at a massive loss there. Yeah, and the director Paul McGuigan went on to not exactly sterling success six years later with Victor Frankenstein. Do you remember when they were trying to create this extended universe? Oh. Oh, yeah, the dark universe, yes. Yes, I think it was meant to be part of that. Okay, with every film being a flop. (laughs) Really impressive. So Victor Frankenstein has James McAvoy and Daniel Radcliffe as Frankenstein and Igor. Oh, okay. It was written by Max Landis, and you would think this would be a great production, but that one cost $40 and only raked in 34 at the box office, so that was a disaster. That's got to hurt. Is that universe still happening? It's not, is it? I don't know. Uh, (laughs) The Mummy uh, was uh, just horrendous movies. (laughs) I love when they released that trailer for it with half of the sound missing. It was so funny. (laughs) (laughs) I did like that one scene in the film where they're running through the the Natural History Museum. Because I've been to the Natural History Museum in London, so... I was like, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> um, but yeah, a horrible film. Oh, I haven't actually seen I've only seen the trailer with the dodgy sound. <laughs> no, it's not a great film. Back to Porsche cinematography really, really stood out. Mm. If you watch the whole film on mute, amazing film. It's just <laughs> visual feast of colours and great composition, great framing. Every scene is a movie poster. Yes. Which is funny because the movie poster is very misleading because yes. he's throwing cars around which he never does <laughs> in the entire film he's never actually able to throw that big of a object around because their powers are quite subdued if you compare mm. it to something like the marvel universe or yeah. even x-men even compared to chronicle which is one of my favorite films in this sort of arena mm. i love that movie yeah i don't normally like found footage but that is really great film it is yeah great performance by dane dehan as well mm-hmm. yeah it's much more low-key and for that more 
realistic is a ridiculous term when you're looking at people with superpowers. Yeah. But certainly it's something that you could relate to more. Yeah, I would say relatable kind of utilize the grittiness of Hong Kong and, mm. and more intimate as well. There were a lot of scenes where the characters were actually character developing and mm. interacting with each other rather than just, oh, here's another action scene. Oh, here's another action scene. Mm. Because this movie doesn't actually have that many action scenes. No. Maybe three. Sort of three set pieces, which is quite old-fashioned in a way. This film does feel older than 2009 to me. Mm-hmm. It feels sort of like a very early noughties, late 90s, influenced by the Matrix type of movie. Mm. I, I definitely agree. Uh, just the stylized look of it and the music choices. Yes. Very, very matrix also kind of reminded me a little bit of um kill bill as well Mm. with the asian characters being more almost like comic book characters yeah if you take a look at the pop family as they're (laughs) described the two brothers dressed up almost like rockabilly 50s but new age rockabilly punk stylings so and the music was done by Neil Davidge, who is actually a longtime co-writer and producer of Massive Attack. Mm. So that's why the music has that sort of moody, electronic, Matrix-esque vibe to it. Yeah, yeah, it kind of did feel almost cheesy because 2009, that thing had already been done. Yes. Years before. Yeah, it really does date it. Although it has to be said that his use of that sort of the edge from U2 guitar style over the top of some of the cues predates the use of Johnny Marr on the soundtrack of Inception, uh-huh. which has a similar theme in terms of pushing ideas into people's minds. Yeah, right. Although that score is not so much techno as Hans Zimmer's grand orchestral compositions. But yeah, here it's the soundtrack does feel very much of the late 90s, not even the late 90s, to be honest, Massive Attack. I mean, the whole trip-hop techno thing was pretty much done, wasn't it? Definitely by 2009. I mean, I would say early 2000s, it was very mm. kind of reminiscent of. But I mean, saying that, I did really like the music. You did? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to be very biased about this film in terms of my age. So... This film just reminds me of all the films I liked in the early 2000s. Right, <laughs> so, okay. So all of this dated stuff, I kind of like, oh, yeah, it's kind of cool. Mm. There was one scene, though, with the music that I just thought, oh, God, cringe, cringe, <laughs> cringe. Uh, and there was a love scene, <laughs> quotation marks here, uh, the love scene with Nick and Camilla Bell's character, um, mm, Kira. Kira yeah. She's in the bathroom and... I guess she's just waiting for Nick to barge in on her. <laughs> in the bathroom. So he's, yeah, yeah. So he's waiting in the, the hotel room and she's just waiting in the bathroom. And then this music starts and it's so cheesy. Like it's, it's almost like spoon feeding the audience. We're going to have a romantic connection here. Here's some romantic music. And then he kind of paces around and then finally he barges in on her. <laughs> Uh, and then they they kiss and it's just like oh god what is this this is terrible i mean the music i did like the song it's it's by a, a german indie rock band called the not twist okay uh, and they're, they're a great band it's just bad choice of music for that scene mm. it just it made it so cheesy and again it feels more like something that you would do in buffy the vampire slayer or the craft that sort of exactly movie exactly. in the late 90s not in 2009 it feels very dated by that point sure. it surprised me actually <laughs> 
we've talked about all the things that we liked about this movie. So what didn't you like about this movie, Conrad? Oh, let's talk about the story. (laughs) Okay. So it does work hard to create this whole mythology around a whole range of psychic abilities, which is great. There are sort of allusions to things and the audience isn't necessarily spoon-fed. You have to run a little bit to keep up with them. Mm -hmm. But it does mean that significant portions of the film are sort of weighed down by exposition and characters explaining what they're going to do and why, because they have to do a certain amount. And the overarching premise of the movie, which is the evil government is trying to create super soldiers with psychics and they're being pretty cruel with them in the process and killing some of them off, so they're trying to go into hiding. Mm -hmm. That feels overly familiar. I mean, particularly after The Fury, it feels over-familiar and dozens of X-Men movies. Yeah, I would also mention another movie. I don't think you've seen it, though. Um, Firestarter. Ah. Pretty much identical plot. (laughs) Yes, Stephen King. Yeah. But once you get outside the stereotypical overarching story, when you get into the nuts and bolts of who's actually doing what and when and why, this movie just falls apart, I think. I noted down numerous flaws in logic and it tries to do some sort of twists towards the end and they don't really work for me either. Was that something that you felt as well? Yeah, I mean... I watched it twice and mm. the first time there were a few things that I was really confused about. I was actually <laughs> really perplexed, like, what just happened? And then watching it again uh, with commentary, it kind of explained a few things. But there is still one part of the film that just makes no sense to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, so huge spoilers here. <laughs> Kira. She escapes the facility, she survives the drug, she escapes with a sample of the drug, she's a complete innocent, Mm. and then she gets caught by Carver, the head honcho of the division, Mm -hmm. and then he tells her, you're actually an agent of the division, and you volunteered, and all of those memories you have of your love for Nick are all false, and I pushed them on you, and then she becomes evil characters like oh what a twist she was evil (laughs) the entire time so that explains why she's so good at fighting Mm -hmm. so she's able to hold a gun she's able to shoot a gun she's able to fend off a henchman I was very surprised by that because she was a lot smaller than he was and she was able to completely overpower him. Mm. So that explains that. Mm. But then you have another twist at the end (laughs) and she opens up the envelope that Nick has given her and there's a photograph of her and Nick at this theme park in Coney Island. And so they did have some big love thing. So is she not an agent now? How did she know how to fight then? That negates the first twist, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, that whole thing does not make any sense. It's a sort of a total recall twist, isn't it? That he finds out that actually he is a bad guy after all. And the only reason that he's Mm -hmm. been set up to be the good guy is because that was the only way to infiltrate the rebellion or whatever. So that would sort of make sense. Mm -hmm. But if she is a knowing participant in this and she is Carver's partner... 
Why on earth does she run away after they give her the injection? Yeah. Why does she panic and run out of the facility with some of the lethal drug or whatever it is? Yeah, yeah. Or has she been set up as the good person before that? I, d- I just don't understand. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Carver tries to explain it and he says, oh, you panicked and you ran away. It's like, <laughs> but why would someone panic? steal a drug, (laughs) run away, have her memory wiped for the last two hours, and then, what? Yeah. (laughs) That makes no sense. It doesn't work at all. It really doesn't. And there are numerous things like this. It's like, why does Pop Girl forget the future just because Nick is wiped? Yeah, I didn't get that either. There's a few other things with... How do the powers work? Because Pop Girl just seems to have convenient premonitions and then inconvenient premonitions. <laughs> I mean, the way to prevent Pop Girl foreseeing what they're going to do is by having these envelopes. But shouldn't she really know what they're going to do by knowing what Nick knows? Yes. Except he gets wiped, but then that means that she gets wiped as well. I, I don't understand why. <laughs> But shouldn't she have really known what was going to happen before he got wiped? Like everything? Yes. Anyway? Yeah. And she was drawing. She was frantically drawing in her little notepad. So Mm. shouldn't it be all there for her just documented? Yeah. (laughs) This is the problem. Once you get into superpowers like this, you need to have very clearly defined rules as to how your world works. Exactly. And I don't think that they'd done enough work on that here because it just doesn't hang together. Yeah. Even while you're watching it, it doesn't. It's all very well if something is such a well-executed and thrilling narrative that you're carried along with it and all of these little plot holes, you just run over them because the steam train is moving so fast, it doesn't matter. Uh I was sat watching this movie thinking, what? What is happening? Why is... I don't... And the whole second act of the movie as well just seems to consist of people sitting around wondering what to do, waiting for a premonition to strike or something. Mm, mm. And then the third act is this kind of elaborate heist where none of them knows what's going to happen because Nick's planned it all and then given them all their instructions in a sealed envelope and then had his brain wiped. So at least sort of in the third act it picks up again, but it sort of lost so much confidence during the second act that I kind of Mm. didn't go along with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even Cassie's superpowers. So she's a watcher. She can see the future. But the future changes. Mm. So shouldn't all of her (laughs) premonitions be wrong anyway? (laughs) I don't... Like having a having being able to see the future, it should happen regardless mm-hmm. of any changes. So uh, it was almost a, a redundant power mm. because they would know what, what the future was, so they would change it. Uh, I also laughed at her sketches because they were all rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of nice though, because usually you cut to the reverse angle and somebody's just putting the final finishing touch on something astounding yeah. that yeah. they clearly did not I know, draw. I know. Yeah. <laughs> That's true, that's true. So accurate. Accurate, yeah. But the one thing that bugged me about all of this is that why is she drawing on black paper? I mean, even Dakota Fanning says herself that those white marker pens drove her crazy while she was making the movie. Is white paper not available in Hong Kong? (laughs) 
because Nick writes all of his instructions in gold pen on red card. Why? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it was just purely just a visual thing. It I, is. It's a stylistic choice. A lot of the choice. the choices for this film were either they looked good mm. or they sounded good. Yeah. Sound design wise, I love this film. I think I thought you would. it was hyper, hyper, hyper real. Mm. Like everything made a noise. I even noticed there's one scene with one of the sniffers and she's her earrings dangle. Mm. And you can hear her earrings dangle. It's like, <laughs> wow, that's, that's so much detail. <laughs> but there, a lot of scenes were just tremendous in terms of sound design mm. and very stylized sound design yeah. as well. Things that sounded so impactful when they shouldn't have sounded like that. Mm. And visually, sound-wise, I think it really does push the movie and makes <laughs> uh, pun. Uh, the, <laughs> and it does make it visually and, and sonically interesting, despite the story. <laughs> yes, despite the story not making any sense. I mean, in terms of the characters as well, are you particularly enamoured of the characters? I mean, certainly I think the film should be hanging on this central duo of Chris Evans and Dakota Fanning. Mm -hmm. It's a 20-something man and a 14-year-old girl who seems kind of worldly in a way that she probably shouldn't be. And she's even drunk at one point, which is not very comfortable viewing at all. No. Um, <laughs> The problem I have is that I don't think either of them are particularly charismatic in this. I think Chris Evans is a nice guy and a great actor. And the film that he did previous to this, Sunshine, I really liked him and I thought he was very good in that movie. And that was the movie that caught Paul McGuigan's attention. Mm. He'd already been a superhero before. He'd already been the Human Torch in two renditions of the Fantastic, Fantastic Four. Yeah. So this is his second superhero mm -hmm. before he even did Captain America. And I have a feeling that he was chosen for Captain America because if you want squeaky clean and bland... Chris Evans is sort of where you go to. So I don't know if he's the most charismatic lead for a movie, and I'm not sure whether he really gave this film the the relationship schutzpah that it needed. Yeah. I mean, I I didn't find him too bad. I, I kind of liked Nick and Cassie. I found Kira just really boring yeah and i was not convinced by their love connection between nick and Kara. No. it just felt so forced and i don't know i i wish they'd maybe had flashbacks or had the first act have more of a focus on their relationship and mm -hmm. how they were when they were together because it didn't feel right it didn't feel like they had any chemistry no. whatsoever even that love scene in the bathroom was <laughs> super awkward and the motivations for Nick to save Kira didn't feel genuine no it just felt like here's a plot point hooray yeah here's a goal for Nick yeah. to pursue so yeah the characters at face value they were interesting mm. and visually they were interesting I loved how they were all dressed differently and the overall look of them but as characters in terms of acting a little bit bland <laughs> Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and as you said before, a lot of the choices in this movie are based on how things will look rather than how practical or likely they are. So a lot of the characters do look as though they are extras from the capital in The Hunger Games. I mean, particularly the stitcher, yes. Stowe. <laughs> just looks like she's wandered in from The Hunger Games with this ridiculous hairstyle <laughs> and these perfectly chosen colour combinations. Uh -huh. If that's what she wears every day, 
day in Hong Kong when she's about to go and manipulate somebody's bag. Yeah, hats <laughs> off to her. That, that's what makes me think that it's very much like The Matrix, which at least had the excuse that this was not reality. Mm-hmm. That if you were going on a heist, you would not wear high-gloss PVC and gel your hair within an inch of its life to do high-kicking kung fu. Mm-hmm. But it was it was fake, and you knew that it was a constructed reality, even for the characters. I mean, mm-hmm. not just you know in terms of the film but in terms of the narrative the matrix wasn't real but in this it is very much style over substance and i think that a lot of the characters were kind of paper thin and certainly as you say kira for such an important role that is supposed to provide an emotional gravity to the the central character and a goal for him towards the end and is the focus of lots of twists Not only did I not buy the twists because it didn't make any sense, I didn't Mm -hmm. care either because she just did not lend it any kind of gravitas whatsoever. It was Mm -hmm. just so bland. Agreed. (laughs) (laughs) And that love scene, I think Chris Evans had to ask permission to touch her bum, didn't he? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, I heard that too. (laughs) Because he's such a gentleman, he would not grope her buttocks without her having given her permission beforehand. Yeah, I wish they'd taken that butt grope out because it just added (laughs) a cherry on top of the cringe cake that they had baked. (laughs) Oh, that's a lovely phrase, yeah. I mean, what I love is that, you know, she's in the bathroom and he bursts in. What happens if she's there sort of pants around her ankles pinching (laughs) off her daily loaf or something (laughs) yeah well I guess so the risks you have to take for love (laughs) now it's time for random trivia so Dan what nugget of fascinating trivia do you have about push just wanted to mention uh, kind of a small bit of trivia first Mm. we mentioned before it was the film was filmed uh, guerrilla style so in the hidden vans across the street there's a one scene where they kidnap so the the two henchmen from the division kidnap Kira on the street at gunpoint so they grab her they're holding a gun to her they (laughs) shove her into a van and that was done on the street of Hong Kong and apparently no (laughs) one even blinked an eye so (laughs) it's a bit of a worry (laughs) yeah it gives you some sense of what life is like in Hong Kong (laughs) yeah well a lot of people I guess my main bit of trivia for this film was leading up to the 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 release of this film uh, Wildstorm an imprint of DC Comics, uh, published a comic book miniseries that acts as kind of a prequel to the film. So I guess, you know, gearing up to the release and getting people excited and and introducing them into the world, Mm. which is, I've never heard of that before, a a comic coming out to kind of hype up a film that's about to come out. That's (laughs) a film that's not even based on a comic at all. So I I guess Mm. the the writer of the film would have been involved with the prequel comic. I guess he must have done. But yeah, it seems funny (laughs) in this day and age for the movie to come first and a comic book to come afterwards. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's kind of strange. But the comic book came before the movie, but was because of the movie. Yeah. (laughs) What? (laughs) I wonder if it's a collector's item now. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So that's uh, that's my random trivia. Woo! 
I guess we could talk about uh, acting as well. So mm. the acting was not the greatest. I mean, I think Chris and Dakota were great. I thought Jimon Honzu was fantastic. He's a very commanding presence in every film he's in. Yes. And he definitely stole the show in terms of being the villain of the film. Yes. But yeah, a lot of the other acting was pretty wooden. Mm. And I think because a lot of the shots were, especially all the busy street shots, were kind of wide angles or very far away zoomed in. I think a lot of the dialogue was ADR'd for those scenes. And so the ADR'd acting was terrible, Mm. especially the fish market scene. Like some of Dakota's and Chris's lines were just, how did that make it in the film? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Like very wooden, very just almost monotone. Like, yeah. I know it's very difficult to capture the energy of a scene months later when you're standing in a vocal booth. I can't even imagine how hard that must be. But you should be better at it than this. (laughs) I was going to say the fish market as well, because that scene just is so flat and it's bizarre. Yeah, it is. Because they've just met as well. Mm. So this is the first time they're, they're connecting as characters. So it's a very important scene. Yeah, But yeah, dialogue terrible (laughs) yeah it's really not good and i think it does undermine what's supposed to be a really great relationship that the audience hangs on to for the rest of the movie but i mean dakota's character vanishes for large portions of the movie especially the finale she's not even there Yeah, yeah i would have cared more about her being in jeopardy and Nick trying mm. to save her or protect her, then I cared about him and Kira. I, I couldn't give two hoots about him and Kira. No, not at all. So comparing this to Marvel movies, another thing I hate about Marvel movies is it's always a setup for the next Marvel movie. So there's never <laughs> any conclusion. And every Marvel movie feels just like a part of another Marvel movie. Mm. It's not a standalone film that you can just enjoy and it ends and you go, ah, that's great. Yes. Concluded. And you have to wait 15 minutes through all the computer <laughs> graphics credits to find out what the hook is. Yes, yeah. exactly. And I remember this film being the opposite of that, being a standalone film and it's concluded and its own film. But it's not. It's not at all. There's a very open-ended ending. The villain is not killed, but, I mean, it's alluded that he is killed. And they don't save Cassie's mum, who she talks about throughout the entire film, that you expect (laughs) her to show up, but she doesn't. And it kind of leads on to, oh, yes, I guess they must have been setting up for a sequel. But, of course, no sequel because absolute flop of a movie. Mm. So a little bit of a letdown. Yeah. Because there isn't that conclusion. There isn't that closure to the story. It kind of just trails off into, oh, what if this happens? And Mm. (laughs) I mean, they get the drug and they don't do anything with it. (laughs) No, and I don't even know what the drug does because nobody takes it. Chris Evans just... Just injects himself with soy sauce and pretends that he's taken it. Yes, he does. And then you have that stupid scene on the plane with Kira and Jimon Honzu's character where you can tell it's post-production tinkering to make it look as though she's actually killed him to give you some resolution, which mm. wasn't there originally. And then it cut to black and I thought, what? Is that it? <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, Kira does get injected with the drug at the start, but I expected her powers to be hugely enhanced. Yes. But they, they're not. No, that's a good point. They're not at all. No, you expect her to be like a Kira or something, sort of dangerously off the rails, or and he has to save her and reel her back into her humanity or something. Yeah. But no. At least it does give you a finale in the tower that's pretty exciting, visually and otherwise. I mean, that's a good set piece at the end yeah. with all of the exploding sacks of colour. dust, yes. Yeah, which makes it look like the Hindu Spring Festival, yes. which we always have here in Cambridge. That's what I thought too. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good set piece, which is more than Glass offers you. I don't know if you went to see Glass. No, I haven't seen it yet. I don't want to spoil it too much, but the whole movie is just pointing towards this tower and you keep thinking, okay, so they're all talking about this tower and there's lots of shots of it. Obviously, we're going to get a finale in this location. Mm-hmm. But no, you just end up with them squabbling in a car park. Oh, <laughs> It's, yeah, not good. It feels very much constrained by its budget. Whereas that's another thing I was going to say about Push. It does not feel constrained by its budget at mm-hmm. all. Really. No, it doesn't. It really, it does make use of every penny and it utilises it very well. Mm. The stunts weren't over the top. But they were impressive. Yeah, impactful on the scale that they were done on. Which is why, the, as you say, the poster is just totally wrong because it gives you this sense of city-wide destruction, <laughs> which is not what happens in this movie. No. But yeah, you so you get a good climax and then that stupid scene on the plane and it's all ruined. Yeah, I know, I know. Agreed. <laughs> Coming to you live from the movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. So, awards season may be over, but we're continuing the tradition with the Mooblies, where we give out some nominations for our favourite or least favourite aspects of the movie in a bunch of completely useless categories. Mm. And unlike the Oscars, you have two hosts. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Not zero. (laughs) Not zero. Although, actually, I thought that worked out quite well on the day, but never mind. So, first category, favourite quote. Dan, what was yours? Mm, well, I watched this film twice and I don't recall any quotes. <laughs> I mean, all the lines, it's all exposition. It's all just mm. explaining what's about to happen, what's just happened, or what has happened. <laughs> so, although I did find a quote from Pop Girl that was just really badly delivered. So it's more than halfway through the film and Pop Girl is confronting Cassie and she says, So tell Nick something for me, little girl. Tell him my family's going to make his brain pop like a tomato. Tell him that's the future I see. (laughs) I mean, it's such a badly delivered line. She really struggles to get through it. And I know English is probably not her first language, but... (laughs) really didn't have the kind of menacing quality that I think they were going for. (laughs) Did you have any quotes, Conrad? Um, I did. A number of reviewers actually picked up on this. So although I sketched it down immediately and then when I was reading up on the movie, I was disappointed because other people spotted the irony here too. But it's from the scene where Nick is attempting to devise a plan that will enable the gang to elude psychics who can see the future. Uh And he says... What if nothing we did made sense? (laughs) Quite. (laughs) I think that describes the third act pretty well, actually. (laughs) 
Mm. So this film came out in 2009, so it's a Naughties film. So what was your most Naughties moment? Oh, well, there is so much to choose from, isn't there? There's techno music montages with speed ramping in the editing. Mm-hmm. There's shaky cam. But I think surely the prize has to go to Chris Evans's voluminous jeans. Oh, yes. <laughs> I am so accustomed now to seeing people wearing jeans that are so tight you can tell their religion. <laughs> to see someone wearing jeans with... I mean, they're not even that baggy. It's not like those skater ones that hang sort of three feet past their underwear. Uh-huh. They just look so baggy, and particularly on someone like Chris Evans, who you know is ripped. Mm-hmm. It just it made me think, oh, gosh, this really is quite some time ago. <laughs> yeah, That was my naughties moment. <laughs> what about you? I would say the most naughties moment about this film uh, referring to your previous comment about film techniques would be all the flashback premonition scenes were very naughty in terms of just high 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 saturation color like they just Mm. ramped it right up to (laughs) more than the highest it could go so much so that there was grainy (laughs) artifacts everywhere everything looked ugly (laughs) and green as as well they just pumped it full of you know light leaks and and white flashes for no reason and lots of fast forward and and quick cuts and stuff but yeah (laughs) i think of the saw movies um, and I right, also think yeah. of um, <laughs> like all those CSI crime investigation TV shows where they had all these stupid flashbacks and just an onslaught mm. to the eyes. <laughs> well, that's what memories look like, I guess. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> okay, so talking about Chris Evans' voluminous jeans, did you have a favourite hair costume combo in this movie? So I really loved the Pop Boys. I mentioned it before, like very <laughs> rockabilly kind of punk throwback 50s but modernized they had the tight jeans they had the checkered shirts they had the hair quaffs (laughs) they had the leather jackets and the rockabilly styled tattoos it was oh just really cool to see and yes (laughs) they didn't make them look overly asian uh it was just a nice take on their characters and i Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Mm. I mean, Cassie for me is the obvious choice (laughs) with her pink hair strands and her mini skirt and her knee-high boots and leopard print bag. But the trouble is that I just can't help but think she's 14 and I'm just not comfortable with how sexualized she is in this movie. And then she gets drunk and she's waving a gun around and yeah, it's a bit awkward. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I I didn't think she was that sexualized in this film um, because girls in the noughties at 13, 14, that's how they dress. So I, I don't know, true. I think it was pretty accurate. Although the drunk scene was a bit awkward. <laughs> the, the drunk scene's not great. And yeah, but still it did make me feel a little bit uncomfortable watching it. Sure. So, uh, favourite scene? Ah, well, mine, despite the bad ADR, is the fish market scene. Oh. I do love the fight scene in the fish market. And especially when, um, so the bleeders who scream so loud they can make you bleed. So they don't actually bleed themselves. So I'm not sure why they're called bleeders, but they should be called shouters or something. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but they managed to shout at a frequency that makes the fish in the tanks explode 
first. So you have these scenes of Chris Evans and Dakota Fanning running through this very smelly fish market, apparently. Mm. And in these tanks, there's just these clouds of red exploding around them. And, mm. and it's the first time that you get to see the powers in use. And yeah, I just thought they pulled it off really well. I really mm. liked it. It was all uh, practically done as well. So they, they were mm. actually running through these exploding fish tanks. Um, so yes. yeah, it's, it was convincing because it was real. <laughs> I liked it. I thought it was good. Mm. Did you have a, a favorite scene? I really liked, I think I mentioned it before, but the, the restaurant fight scene. So uh, mm. Nick is facing off Victor and they're both movers. So they both have telekinetic powers and they're, they're doing these power punches, <laughs> what I call power mm. punches. So very souped yeah. up punches <laughs> with big sounds and, and <laughs> rainbow auras coming off them. Mm. And Victor overpowers Nick and ends up throwing him around the room and like a ragdoll and a gunfight with floating guns, which I've yes. never really seen before. That was really interesting. <laughs> Great set design. Just a really well put together scene. And it's definitely the scene that Chris Evans enjoyed the most because in every interview I've watched of him talking about this movie, he is giddy as a schoolboy about <laughs> having the opportunity to do the shot where he's sliding across the floor whilst firing a gun. He was very pleased about that. Yeah. Bless him. <laughs> it looked great. But speaking of action movie cliches, is there a cliche in this movie that you spotted? I'm not sure which genre we're going to go for. I, I picked an action one. What about yeah, you? Yeah. Well, I kind of picked kind of an actiony thriller one. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I'm referring to the twist. The first twist, the big twist that happens with the reveal of Kira. Oh no, she's a bad character. And so before that, before she's revealed as the bad character, she's dressed very kind of down. She's got a cardigan on. She's got like a, a, a kind of a loose dress. She's got like, jeans on. She's very normal looking. Her hair's a bit of a mess. As soon as she's revealed as evil, she suddenly dons like a sparkly, I don't even know what sort of dress that is. She has knee high boots. Her hair is completely immaculately straight. I don't know. I just don't understand why every time a character is revealed as evil, they have to immediately, especially if they're female, they have to immediately dress her sexy. <laughs> because sexy is evil. <laughs> well, women's empowerment of any kind is evil. You should know that, of course. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> and what was your most cliche moment, genre-wise? Mine actually came from the restaurant scene that you liked, I think, which is uh, that, that famous cliche of after running out of bullets, throwing the gun at your assailant. Oh, which, yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, at least in this movie, it has the twist that they're doing it telekinetically. It, it always makes me laugh when people start hurling each other's guns at each other because I'm <laughs> put in mind of the naked gun and police squad where Leslie Nielsen would always do this. He would start throwing his gun at the other person and eventually they'd just be throwing piles of guns at each other. <laughs> and then you'd cut to the wide shot and they're only two feet apart, that kind of thing. Amazing. I just It's such a cliche, such a cliche. <laughs> How about favourite special effect? What was yours? Well, I, this is one area where I didn't think there were any cliches, actually. I thought the use of the effects was 
quite um, innovative and visually striking. And the one that I liked particularly was one you've mentioned, which is the sort of spectrum auras every time they do these power punches. I thought that was a really good visual way of showing the power of them, that they're actually breaking up the spectrum of visible light as they're doing it, and that creates this aura effect. I thought that was really good, and it was just subtle touches like that. And those CGI guns, the way that they are lit and the way they are they move, they look as though they actually are in the scene. I thought it was really clever. So mm. I, yeah, really subtle stuff, I really liked it. How about you? I, I completely agree. I have the same effect. The the rainbow aura yeah. for the power punches. Just something I've never seen before as well. It wasn't... No. They were trying something different. It wasn't over the top as well. It wasn't just blinding light or anything. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> so I, th- I thought it was subtle and, and innovative. And yeah, I really enjoyed them. It's good stuff. And how about sound? Did you have a favorite sound effect? I liked the sound throughout the entire film, but there wasn't anything that really stood out. I mean, I guess the power punches and the force fields that they somehow generated as well when they were deflecting <laughs> the bullets. That sound was kind of cool. Mm. Um, but I always laugh at movies with guns and how every time a gun shows up, even if you're not doing anything to it, it's just rattling. <laughs> it's just constant rattles of guns in scenes. Surely real guns don't rattle around that much. Surely if you had a gun that rattled that much, you would need to get a fix. <laughs> yeah, it's not good, is it? Wouldn't give you any confidence that when you fired it, it wasn't going to just explode in your face. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's rattling that much. My goodness, that's a good good point i've never thought of that before what was your favorite sound effect um mine's probably an obvious one it was the sound that the the bleeders or the screamers we should call them make when they are screaming because the way that they did it they sort of chop up the sound so that it almost sounds like it's so loud that it's breaking up the soundtrack of the movie almost Uh Uh like i quite like that apparently originally the sound was much louder and more irritating but the preview audiences hated it. It was making their ears bleed, so they oh, had to sort of yes. redesign it into something else. And I thought what they came up with worked really well. Oh, right, right. Well, that actually leads nicely onto the funniest scene uh, category because I actually thought every scene with the bleeders shouting was hilarious. <laughs> because <laughs> it's just such an intrusive power you have to scream at the top of your lungs to, for it to work <laughs> and they would always pose while they were doing it and their eyes would change shape why? why yeah. did their eyes change shape when they did it? <laughs> <laughs> what was your funniest scene? Oh, with me it was the sniffers I just love seeing the character actor Carrie Stoll lovingly snorting Chris Evans's toothbrush. It's just, <laughs> I think, as you said earlier, it's such an inconvenient superpower. But no, you really yeah. don't want to be sniffing people's personal <laughs> items to find out where they've been. That's not good. Yeah. It made me giggle. Yeah. But Carrie Stoll pulled it off quite well. He's a good actor, actually. He takes the lead in the Guillermo del Toro series, The Strain. He's very good in that. Oh, so. I haven't seen that. Yeah, he's good. And that's our Mooblies. Yeah.
Okay, we are back for the final verdict of Push. So should this film be set free to sniff all your personal belongings, or <laughs> should it be thrown back into the oubliette and be screamed at and burst like a tomato? <laughs> Conrad, you had never seen this film before. What is your final verdict? Well... I have to say I admired what they achieved on a small budget and I loved seeing a film that was entirely shot on location. It's so refreshing after watching years of green screen and entirely unbelievable locations created in a computer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the Hobbit. <laughs> and... <laughs> And I thought that the action scenes were really well executed on a relatable scale with great visual effects, great sound design. And although the music is of a particular era, I still liked it because I like Massive Attack. So, mm -hmm. um, so those are all the aspects of the film that I enjoy. But as a story... I really don't feel that it worked. And for somebody who struggles to remain awake during <laughs> uh, superhero movies in the first place, I did struggle a great deal with this. And I found the second act boring and the third act terminally confusing and it just <laughs> fell apart. So as a piece of entertainment, I didn't really engage with the characters or the story or feel that there were any stakes. There's this MacGuffin that they they're always talking about and I don't even know what it does or why we should care and they don't even do anything with it anyway. Mm. So my feeling at the end once it was over with that terrible scene on the plane at the end was, why did I watch this? <laughs> um, I think in all good conscience, I don't think I would recommend that somebody else watch it. So my sense is it should go back. Oh, But I have a feeling that you will disagree with me, which is ah, why I thought this would be interesting. Well, well, well. Um, I, I know, I know plot-wise and, and character-wise, this is terrible. Uh, it doesn't hold up. It's, <laughs> it's not cohesive. The end is just, what? No one understands what's going on. Acting-wise, not even that great, really. Um, but... I really love the look of this film. I love the mm. location. I do like the music. It's not hugely original, but I I think it does deliver. Mm. The sound design was great. Yeah, I, I think the cinematography and, and the location, I just can't get over it. It's just phenomenal. You never, ever see visuals like that in a Marvel movie or a DC movie. Mm. It's all just CGI'd garbage just everywhere yes. <laughs> and nothing looks real and every fight scene is CGI'd and it's, uh, it was just so mm. refreshing to watch a film that felt tangible. I would actually recommend this film and oh. I know it's bad. I know the story's bad. I think it's just a bit of popcorn flick to, to throw on and, and just suspend all disbelief. And, <laughs> and critical faculties. <laughs> exactly. And just watch it unfold and, and enjoy the visual feast that it is. Um, so, mm. yeah, I, I would actually release this film and set it free to the world. Oh, well, you know what this means? I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> For only the second time so far in this podcast, we must unleash the coin of fate. The coin of fate. 
Yeah, we get to use that jingle again. (laughs) (laughs) So are you picking heads or are you picking tails? Ooh, I think I will go with heads. Okay, here goes. Hey, it's heads. This is unprecedented. That's the second time I've won the coin of fate. So I feel so, so privileged. Oh, we are letting it go. We are. <laughs> yes. Thanks to the coin of fate. Congratulations, Isaac Larsner. Yes, yes. He's going to be very thrilled to know the verdict that we have come to. Okay. So I'm going to push, push out into the world. <laughs> Uh, I guess the question now is, what will we be doing next episode? Well, for the next episode, it's something that I have chosen for you to see, because I'm very keen for you to see it. And it is a 2009, still in the same year, horror fantasy movie called... The Hole. Oh, (laughs) sounds ominous. (laughs) Yes, it does, doesn't it? We should be able to relate to this one, actually, because it prominently features a trap door that when you open it leads to all sorts of delights and mysterious horrors. So we'll be right at home. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) And it's a Joe Dante movie, so what's not to love? I still haven't seen enough of Joe Dante, so keen to check it out. Yes. So join us next time for that. In the meantime, if you would like to comment and give us either a suggestion for a film we should cover for us to put on the oubliette roulette or tell us what you think of our verdict, then please let us know. We are Movie Oubliette on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And we are movie.oubliette at gmail.com if you want to email us. Yes, and don't forget to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice because we need all the word of mouth we can get. Yes, please, more reviews. (laughs) Okay, bye for now, everyone. Goodbye. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie yet. Hey, what did I inject myself with? Nine dragon soy sauce?